Greetings again, everyone. How many of you heard the President's State of the Union address? Well, I wish I could have given it for him. <laughs> Years ago, there was a statement bandied about the country, let George do it. And today, that statement is back. George Bush, that is. It seems like a discontented populace in the midst of a very serious recession, maybe heading into a depression, are blaming the president for all of our ills. And the Democrats are very happy to place that blame and to really begin to zero in on all of the Band-Aid and bailing wire and chewing gum approaches that George Bush outlined in the State of the Union address. When I say I wish I could have given it for him, it was because I was really hoping with the buildup that the media gave it, saying that it may well be the election and that it was the most important speech of his life, that they could have looked a little bit beyond George Bush's re-election, a little bit beyond politics, and could have realized that our nation is in such deadly jeopardy in a global community of which we are largely blissfully unaware, meaning the potential in the next five to seven to ten years by the end of this century of a rearmed, remilitarized Japan a rearmed, remilitarized Germany at the head of the United States of Europe, that I felt what was needed was something virtually Churchillian. Someone to say, I can promise you nothing but blood, sweat, toil, and tears. Someone who might have sounded like John Kennedy when he was elected, who said, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Someone who could have dared to tell the American people it is time to sacrifice not merely that it's time to seize more of the pie, to cry out for more government handouts, and to have people talking about guaranteed medical payments or medical care all the way up to the cradle of the grave analogy of the government taking care of us, no matter who we are, the so-called safety net for the poor, so that all of the taxpayers support all of the people who are either unwilling or unable to work for some reason or another. I was very disappointed from one standpoint in the speech, and yet it was probably as good as George Bush ever gets. And that says something all by itself. It says something about the leadership of this country, and it says something about so many short-sighted people, including the Patrick Buchanans and at least two out of the six would-be presidential hopefuls of the Democratic Party who are talking about protectionism and America first. I have interesting conversations sometimes with my neighbors who are virtually unaware of what is happening in the world, who know almost nothing apparently about history, and especially about World War II history, and especially about Japan and Germany. When I told one of them recently that Japan, at the rate of only 1% of GNP contributed to its defense program, was spending more money than Britain, France, or Germany, he simply didn't believe me, I don't think. And when we are now going to insist upon Japan spending from 3 to 5% to take up for our lack, and don't think for one moment they're not going to be screaming continually in these defense cuts to bring at least 100,000 American men home from Europe, that there will not be a vacuum created into which European multilateral defense forces will have to move. And the same thing will happen in Japan. So I was very, very disappointed in one sense because... Continually, we hear the hue and cry in our country that it's the one man in the White House who, if he just had the will, 
if he just knew what maybe Sarbanes knows or what maybe some of the other Democrats know or maybe Ted Kennedy knows, then he could just push the right buttons and make the right statements and put in the right programs and all would be well. Some of them are even saying, if the Japanese don't open up their market to our products, we should never allow another single Japanese car into this country. And that absolutely obtuse, bovine, stupid statement is met with cheers and applause and excitement by millions of Americans who do not seem to know for the past couple of three decades the Japanese have been purchasing our debt, that we have gone to them instead of the banks like a neighbor and said, look, we need to borrow heavily. Would you mind loaning us the money to be able to spend for this and that and the other program? And that the average American workman today works one month out of 12 just to pay the interest we owe the Japanese on the money we have borrowed from them. And that the Japanese have done exactly what we wanted them to do. They have invested all the extra dollars they have been earning and saving at the rate of 17 to 21 percent, where we save at the rate of about 3 percent. And that money has to go somewhere. All that liquidity has to go somewhere. Where should it go? We say, buy over here. We need your investment. And so 110,000 Americans owe their jobs to Toyota. But the man who was running for the White House doesn't say anything about that. He just says, I would not allow another Japanese car in this country until they open up their markets to our products. And the Japanese say, why should we buy inferior products? Your cars aren't as good as ours. And some people will argue they don't even have a point. But it is arguable that Detroit has made some, some uh, strides in the right direction and that we are improving. But for many decades, that was not so. And from the day, many years ago, when that first laughable little Toyo pet began running around the streets in Los Angeles, and the first little Beatles, the first little Volkswagens began appearing on America's highways in the 1950s, we have been in the midst of a trade war, and we have clearly lost that trade war. Now, what I want to talk to you about today is individual and personal responsibility. I cannot help but comment on world conditions and on the conditions in our country in relationship to us here today, because the work we have to do has everything to do with biblical prophecy, no matter what some church leaders have recently stated in print in an article entitled, Why Prophecy?, saying that the main reason prophecy is in the Bible is to demonstrate God's love toward us using the analogy that since we are told we cannot know the day and the hour of the second coming of Christ, that anything other than simply looking at it in broad general terms is merely idle speculation. We should not really be overly concerned about biblical prophecy. It's merely to demonstrate God's love toward us. Well, if you recall the last time I spoke to you when I quoted the scripture out of Romans, the ninth chapter, what if God, willing to make known his wrath, should endure the vessels created for destruction with much long suffering? And what if God, when he told Moses, raised up Pharaoh for the very purpose of demonstrating his great wrath, his anger, and his power to the nations of the world, and indeed for all of history that would come along to read of the terrible plagues that fell upon Egypt? Well, I will deal with that proposition in a coming article in the 20th Century Watch as to whether or not biblical prophecy is part and parcel of the very purpose and the reason for the existence of the church. Because after all, the gospel is a prophetic message. It is a futuristic message. It is the message of the coming kingdom of God 
which is the world ruling government of God. And no matter what Pat Robertson or anyone else says, that kingdom is not here now, and it will not be brought into reality by a good man of goodwill working together everywhere, thinking, gurgling, happy, baby thoughts in order to eventually overcome all of evil and Christianize the world and bring about the greater effects of the kingdom of God into which we may enter if we just enter into it right now. The kingdom of God is going to come as a result of a conquering, returning Jesus Christ who is going to rule the world with a rod of iron, not because human beings will bring it about. Too many people expect leadership to do it all, to take care of them, to protect them, preserve them, give them every blessing and benefit, to help them when they're in trouble, to steer them in the right direction, show them the way to a fruitful, happy, productive life. When those things do not happen in their lives, they tend to blame that leadership. That's true in politics. It seems to be true sometimes in religion. Years ago, I also was part of a parent organization that had a concept about church government regarding whether or not there was any individuality, any expression of personality, any individual responsibility with regard to the growth of the body of Christ, the church, to where the minister felt that if any infraction occurred, if any terrible sin was discovered among his own congregation, somehow his own garments were defiled. Well, the minister felt the individual problems in his congregation were his responsibility. Where the way to keep the sheep away from the wolves is to build a huge game fence around the wolves, about around the sheep rather, about 12 feet high with barbed wire going both ways like a military base, and then to have just one door that goes in and out, and the gatekeeper is the shepherd. And he stands there and he controls access to the sheep. He also controls egress or whenever the sheep are allowed to get out of that pen and therefore the sheep are protected. Well, I don't know all that much about sheep herding, but I have hunted up in Colorado for many years and seen tens of thousands of sheep ranging freely around those high mountains and knew a family in the church that used to actually take their children and herd their sheep for about 170 miles along the roadways over the bridges and move them from high country to low country pasturage. And it seems to be that sheep are a wide-ranging herd instinctive animal. They do crowd together by instinct for protection, but they will just range all over. And the shepherd will have a dog or two, and he may be riding a horse or he may be walking, but it's utterly impossible for him to keep his eye on all of those sheep all of the time. Now, the analogy in the Word of God is that the congregation represents sheep. And Jesus warned about wolves in sheep's clothing. Back at the time to which I refer, the way to get rid of problems was, first of all, by preventive legislation, which was a whole series of thou shalt nots. And then it was also by the harshest kind of retaliation for any kind of sin, which meant instant branding, labeling, or marking from the pulpit and excommunication or disfellowshipment of a person guilty of some terrible infraction or other. And that was all the responsibility of the ministry. 
Anyone who would assay to develop their own leadership to be in any kind of a teaching or a counseling or advisory mode in the church would be thought of as being perhaps a threat to the minister. So let me ask you, when should a Christian say no? When should a Christian be more of a Christian than the way many of us think we should be when the Jehovah's Witnesses come to our door? or the young, brushed, and combed, and neatly attired Mormon missionaries, aged 21 or 2, two young men usually, come to our door, or when a member of a local congregation begins to espouse all sorts of weird theories and thoughts and concepts, maybe, maybe even proclaiming that he is some kind of a holy man. We had a couple of guys show up at the office last week. I happened to be working at home that day, and I wasn't there. If I'd have been there, they wouldn't have been given anywhere near as much time as some of our office staff gave them. But uh, it was pointed out to the office staff that they were about to meet the most, I don't know what all his titles were, but he was a holy man of the mountain and all sorts of mucky-muck, uh, huge titles. And Mr. Gross can fill you in if you're wondering what all those titles were. I really don't wonder. I don't even care. But uh, let me explain it this way. Many years ago, and let's turn to the 13th chapter of Matthew to show you where this idea came from. People began to assume that to be a good Christian, you must never give offense. And furthermore, aren't there plenty of scriptures that talk about entertaining angels unawares? Isn't there the remote possibility that when somebody comes to you in poor, tattered, maybe even dirty clothing, that he might be an angel? So you've got to be careful, right? So the way good Christian people usually approach things that sometimes are downright embarrassing is to virtually do nothing. Someone is espousing some sort of a weird doctrine. They're saying, oh, is that so? Well, you don't say. Or, oh, is that right? Well, what do you know? <gasps> I, well, is that right? And they're nodding, and they are not really agreeing, but neither are they disagreeing because... Most of us tend to shy away from any kind of embarrassment. We don't like scenes in public. We don't like adversarial relationships. We don't like confrontation. And so we shy away from it. In the 13th chapter of the book of Matthew, beginning in verse 24, this is the chapter that is filled with several parables. Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. Now a tear could be called cheat wheat. It's like a, a wild rye. It looks very much like wheat, but it's not really wheat at all, but a kind of a wild grass. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. They came to ear at the same time. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? From whence then has it tares? When I was a boy, I was hired at a few cents an hour to go out into the fields where they had actually reaped and bound together huge sheaves of flax. And there was wild oats or something growing in the flax, and it was taller than the flax. And all we had to do was to take our gloves and just stand there endlessly pulling this wild, unwanted grass out of those sheaves of flax. An obnoxious chore, but at least we could earn money for our school clothes. And this is something like that. Without going to a great deal of trouble, now that it's to be harvested, to get all of that useless material out of there, it was going to hurt the value of the crop. From whence has it tares? And he said unto them, An enemy has done this. The servant said unto him, Will you then that we go and gather them up? 
But he said, Nay, lest while you gather up the tares, you root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together first the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. So it was understood by many people 20, 30, 40 years ago and longer that the tares are people within the church who are really not fully converted, and maybe even some of them have some offbeat, not quite biblical ideas. But there's no reason to make any definitive separation at this point. There's no reason for any confrontation. There's no reason for anybody to make any big deal out of it. Certainly no reason for the minister to call them in and counsel with them or to suggest that they ought to give up some of these ideas they are espousing. Let them alone. Let's not have controversy. Just let God do it. Or let George do it. Or let the minister do it. But I don't need to do it. It's not my responsibility. I should just stand there and say, oh, is that right? Oh, is that so? <gasps> you don't say. But let them alone. Besides, maybe they are angels unawares. Well, is that true? Is that exactly what that parable meant? Well, if you will turn a few verses further on in verse 36 of the same chapter, the disciples came to Jesus and said, after the multitude had gone away, Declare unto us the parable of the tares of the field. He answered and said unto them, He that sowed the good seed is the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, preaching the gospel. The field is the church. Now, I made a mistake on purpose, didn't I? It doesn't say the church, does it? It says the field is the world. Is New Zealand in the world? South Africa in the world? Holland? Germany? Asia, China, Central and South America, the United States. Well, of course, the entirety of the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom. And what are they? The church. They are the good seed. And they are in the world, but not of the world. But they are scattered, as we read in other analogies in the Bible. But the tares are the children of the wicked one, Satan the devil. They're Satan's children. Unknowingly, because they are deceived, some of them knowingly and deliberately, like DeVries, or whatever his name is, who established in 1966 the church of Satan the devil out in San Francisco. But by and large, people who are deceived of a counterfeit or deceived of Satan the devil are good, sincere people who do not know they are deceived, but they are of Satan generically, in the sense they are of the world, they are of its politics, its literature, its art, its entertainment, its history, its point of view its values, its approach to life, it's, uh, it's everything. They're part of the world. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. Does the devil sow seed inside God's church? Well, he might try, but this analogy, this parable is not telling us that God allows that. Because, in fact, the entirety of New Testament literature is written for the specific purpose of showing us, well, not only the specific purpose of showing us the struggles to keep the church free from error, but when you think of all of the appeals of the Apostle Paul, of what John said, of Diotrephes, of the many other examples of Paul's warning that the insidious thing was already at work and that he would continue to withhold it until he die or be taken out of the way or until it begin to become evident for what it was, Second Thessalonians, the second chapter, 
and he talked about apostasy. But that was not apostasy. It should not apostasy that should not have been either labeled, discovered, or rooted out. It was apostasy that was up to other individuals to recognize and to avoid, as we're going to see. The enemy that sowed them is Satan, the devil. The harvest is the end of the world. It's the time of the second coming of Christ, the day of the Lord. And the reapers are the angels, as therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire. This is not talking about excommunication from the church, is it? It is talking about life eternal on the one hand for the good seed, the wheat, the children of the kingdom, the church. And it's talking about utter destruction and a lake of fire for those who are of the devil, of the world. So shall it be at the end of this age, and that is the real meaning of the Greek word, the Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity. Gather out of his kingdom, not out of the church, and cast them into a furnace of fire, and there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous, the good seed, the wheat, shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father, who has ears to hear, let him hear. Some misunderstanding the individual responsibility of every lay member have actually hypothesized or proposed that God uses Satan to purge the church. That God, in a sense, allows Satan to plant an evil member or an evil would-be teacher who begins to fester into sort of a boil on the body and that eventually it causes a huge operation. You know, you've got to get all the melanoma and everything around it in order to make sure it doesn't spread. And that God, therefore, allows the devil, or in fact even uses the devil, it has been proposed by some, to purge the church. Is that true? I tell you on the authority of Jesus Christ, it is absolutely untrue. It is heretical. It is false. It is totally contrary to what God's Word says, continually. Now, in 1 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, you'll see an example. Matter of fact, Mr. Dart mentioned some things along this line uh, some six weeks or so ago, whatever it's been now, in his sermon on disfellowshipment. Paul, remember, if you think about what he said in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 1 and 2, he wrote to the church of God. This is not a pastoral epistle. This is not a letter to Timothy or Titus or Philemon. This is a letter to the church. It is a letter to be read to the entire congregation. It is not a letter to a private individual like a pastor of a church from his superior pastor. And also, he says in verse 2, those who are sanctified to be saints, called in Jesus Christ to be saints, with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus the Lord. So it is a letter to the laity not just to a minister or the ministry. He said, It is reported commonly, chapter 5, that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. The commentaries think, I don't know where they get it, there's no real proof of that, but because of the language, they think it is not his own mother, but a stepmother, and therefore it is an incestuous relationship with someone's stepmother. And you are puffed up. They were prideful, they were filled with vanity, as the third chapter shows. And have not rather mourned that he that has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I verily, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have judged already. Now, is Paul advocating 
the application of the parable of the tares. Is he saying, remember what Jesus said about the tares. Leave him alone. Let this situation prevail. God will take care of it. Or I will take care of it when I come. No. He is shocked that it hasn't already been dealt with. He is alarmed that they haven't seen that they should have already handled the situation a long time ago. I verily, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have judged already as though I were present concerning him that has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together, and my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Now that sounds very horrible. Like a terrible curse to be pronounced upon someone who was living in that so-called lifestyle. But notice the rest of the phrase, that the Spirit may be saved as a result of all of this human suffering, maybe contracting genital herpes or warts or AIDS or whatever might be the outcome of this terrible relationship, that the Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So it's for the ultimate good of the congregation first and of the individual secondly. Your glorying is not good. Don't you know that a little, little leaven leavens a whole lump? My father used to say one rotten apple in a whole box of apples is going to eventually spoil the entire box. That happens to be true. And there are plenty of examples in history to show that or in any organization. Now in Romans, going back a little bit in the 16th chapter and the 17th verse, again notice that the book of Romans is written to the laity. It is not a pastoral epistle. And he says, beginning in verse 17 of the last chapter of Romans, I beseech you, brethren, not writing to a pastor at the church in Rome, but to the laity, to the individual lay membership, take note of, if you look at the original Greek, at the diaglot, it does not mean brand or label. It does not mean put a stamp or a mark upon, or to publicly brand or label, but it means to take note of them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned, and avoid them. So if Mr. Dart explained several weeks ago, that means uh, you, don't, you don't have fellowship with someone like that. If they, if they get a little exercised over it and come up to you and say, say, I noticed that you've been avoiding me for the last several weeks. Well, yeah, George, I have been because uh, I'm very concerned about the fact you've been telling people in this congregation that the resurrection's over already. We'll come to that a little later on, where Hymenaeus and some other people were actually espousing that doctrine within the church. Now, let me just point out right at this, at this juncture, because it's as good a place as any to bring it in. No member of the Church of God International, or for that matter, the Methodist Church, the Baptist Church, or the Catholic Church, I think, should ever assume that the minute you walk in these doors, you are absolutely inside the sheepfold, the gate is shut, you're surrounded by a 12 foot of electrified barbed wire, the shepherd is in control, and there is no way that Satan's minions or any satanic influence or any self-styled so-called would-be prophet or preacher of false doctrine could ever come among you or espouse some idea or pet theory that is patently false. You are sheep, by analogy, in the Word of God, and you are wide-ranging sheep out in the pasture, able to go wherever you will, wherever the grass looks greenest and thickest and most succulent. And the shepherd, if he notices a wolf, is going to come to your aid. But you know, a sheep can probably notice a wolf a lot quicker than a shepherd can, especially if he's closer to him. Sometimes he can catch his odor. 
Sometimes he can actually see him furtively running around. A sheep can recognize a wolf pretty, pretty clearly. It's only when that wolf kills another sheep and skins him out and crawls inside his hide and comes trotting up into the flock wearing sheep's clothing that the sheep can be taken in. And then sometimes it's up to the shepherd to see the difference, which is the analogy that Jesus gave. So notice what the Apostle Paul says. He says they had a responsibility to do something about it, that they had to put that individual away from them. And back in Romans, the last chapter, brethren, mark or take note of them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned, and avoid them, for they are such that serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. Long ago, Mr. Dart correctly pointed out, because of all of the pain and suffering of so many people who had undergone disfellowshipment, we wrote into the Constitution and bylaws of the Church of God International that we would never hand or give into the hands of any local pastor the absolute authority and control to utterly block out any redress of grievances, any method or mode of appealing to the home office or headquarters, that we would not put a pastor in a church and say, you are in total control to the extent that if you disfellowship A, B, or C, they're automatically not to attend the Feast of Tabernacles. If they move to some other state, they can never darken the door of any church again unless you yourself rescind that disfellowshipment. And because that had been abused, we just weren't going to go that route again. And thank God we did not. And thank God it has been very beneficial to the Church of God International. And there are many people who attend this church who have difficulty, who have habits of appetite, smoking, or other habits. We recognize that they desperately need church instruction and they need church fellowshipment. I've given the analogy of how ridiculous it would appear if a person came into the emergency room of a hospital with a compound fracture of his arm and the doctor outraged, said, what are you doing here bleeding all over my carpet? Get out of here, set the bone, heal it all up. And when you come back in a splint and a nice, neat, clean bandage, I'll try to help you. No, but we recognize that people who are like walking wounded need to be in the church. And the Bible continually says that there are people who are weak, people who believe in various dietary thoughts. And you need to be educated and alert and aware of the fact, as one member of the flock of sheep, that other members of the flock of sheep might believe you can eat loco weed and you don't think you should eat that. And there are people who will come up to you in a church congregation and espouse things that are patently false. And you have a personal responsibility. In both of these cases, Paul is putting the responsibility on the local lay membership, not on the ministry, to take note of someone who causes offenses and to avoid them. Now, you're very well aware in 1 Corinthians 12th chapter, I'll just turn to one quick scripture, and it is not my analogy but God's, that the church is likened unto a body. And he even goes into details about the body. As the body is one and has many members, like hands and feet and arms and legs and ears and nose and eyes, and the members are all one body, so also is Christ. 
For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body. Then in verse 15, if the foot shall say, because I'm not the hand, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And he goes into great detail about those members of the body that are less calmly that we keep hidden and concealed. Now, if I should slice my index finger in an accident opening a can, I do not then take a pencil and poke it in my eye, my ear, my nose, or my mouth. The index finger is out of the way, and I'm going to try to use my other fingers and go ahead and sign my signature. It's my other fingers that come to the aid of my sliced finger. Not, although my mind has something to do with it, it is not the head. If I slice one toe and hurt it in an accident, I'm going to be walking all right, but try to maybe wind a bandage around it and keep it up off of the ground, and I'm limping a little bit. So all my other toes, my foot, my ankle, my knees, my thighs, my hip, are helping my toe. Now my analogy, to go a little further, is that lay members help lay members and it says very clearly that the body is to grow under the edifying of itself. You'll also find that same analogy in Ephesians, the fourth chapter. The point is, then, that not only the shepherd is able to see a wolf, but a lay member is supposed to be able to see, to identify, and to deal with a wolf. Now think about it. In all of history, from the standpoint of creation, recreation, the time of Adam, the time of Christ, and other examples when every time there was something really important, really earth-shaking, really of global import going on, guess who showed up? Guess who came to the party? Always Satan the devil. Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 describe the attempt of Lucifer, the light bringer, to overthrow God and unseat him from his throne. Creation Week describes Satan the devil appearing to Eve in the garden and deceiving man and causing what is called the fall of man, although I've said it's not a fall, he was pushed. You see, later on, at the time of the appearance of all of the angels before God in Job, the second chapter, there came a day when the sons of God appeared to present themselves before the eternal, and Satan also came among them. And God said, where have you been, Satan? He said, oh, walking to and fro on the earth. And there follows the book of Job. And you see all of the examples. Isn't it interesting that Satan the devil was right there? If you will turn to the book of Jude, I will show you a further warning where Jude, who is the brother of Jesus Christ and James, recalls those ancient times and uses some of those very same analogies in urging the brethren to earnestly contend for the purity of the original truth of Jesus Christ and to beware of false doctrine and false teachers. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ, the brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. Mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write of, uh, unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are, there were then and there are now, Certain men crept in unawares. Now, you've heard of angels unawares. These are men who crept in unawares. There are, in the Church of God International, individuals of any stature, living in any state, of any background, of any educational level, of any position of responsibility, with hidden agendas. All right? That's a given. There just are. There are people like that with hidden agendas. 
They have hopes and dreams, and then they have actual outlined possibilities and programs, and then they've got actual strategies, and then it comes down to day-to-day -day and week-to-week tactics, and they have these agendas. Some of them are clearly pursuing them. Others are just hoping that all of the right things fall into place, and perhaps the moment will arrive when some such agenda could be realized. And that agenda is satanic. Let me put it this way. I'm going to reach a little bit and hope you follow me. Years and years ago, during the height of the Vietnam War, an editorial in the United States News and World Report opined that Lyndon Baines Johnson had to bring the war in Vietnam to a halt because if he was going to run for president again, Johnson dares not face the voters with a war on his hands. Now, doesn't that tell you an enormous amount? In one sense of the word, that is one of the most absolutely hideous indictments by the media of any president that you could ever imagine, and yet it happens to be the truth. What is it telling us? It is telling us that even such things as gigantic wars that are costing tens of thousands of human lives and billions of dollars can be started or they can be stopped depending upon the personal aspirations of one human being who wants to be catapulted into the White House and therefore a place in history. That editorial said he wouldn't dare face the voters with a war on his hands. Now it's an unfortunate indictment, but it happens to be true. Do you think that some of these presidential candidates who are screaming about protectionism in America first don't know about the degree of Japanese investment, about the degree of the relationship of the Japanese and the American economy so that if you tried to pull them apart, it would be like that poor fellow up in Minneapolis or in Minnesota the other day whose arms were yanked from his body by the power takeoff of a tractor? A young farming lad whose arms were lying there on the ground and he had to use his knees and go and somehow with a pencil in his mouth dial 911. They sewed his arms back on and he may make it. A grotesque, unbelievable, hideous accident that occurred. But think about that. They will not honestly portray to the American public what is really needed and that is another subject about sacrifice and a great goal, a transcendental goal, toward which we unitedly press, realizing that we are really in a war, and as one of them has said, the Cold War is over and Japan won, and realizing what is going to be required for the United States to be truly competitive in a global market, but they will continue to say whatever is expedient in order to catapult themselves into a position of power. Now that happens in religion. That happens in religion. Mr. Dart mentioned, and I don't want to repeat that because who it involved, but he mentioned an occasion where a very great wrong had been done and where the person who had done the wrong and actually even espoused a totally false doctrine, which is still extant in another church, said, I know the doctrine is wrong, I know it's false, but I had to do that to stop someone. In other words, admitted to private individuals that his doctrinal statement was absolutely political, was completely false, and was done to achieve a political end. 
Now, I don't want to call names, so when I look at some of these gyrating characters that look like a monkey in a zoo trying to entertain the people who were the spectators and maybe asking for a banana, screwing their faces up into all sorts of ridiculous expressions and pretending to be beating some paper to death and talking about Satan the devil, I happen to think that they are utterly dishonest and some of them are a pack of dirty, rotten, filthy crooks and ought to go to jail. But that's just my private opinion. But I'm saying that there are many other people I could meet who would hate me for having that opinion and who believe that those are men of God and will defend them and would appear in court on their behalf and believe every one of those ridiculous gyrations and posturings and carnival sideshow technique to hype a kind of an idea to bilk the general public. And I'll tell you, they're as bad as the old uh, snake medicine uh, doctors of the early American West that came along with a magazine painted up with, you know, Mrs. Sopwith's special oil that would heal everything from chill blains to night sweats to nine-month pseudo-pregnancies. And people would line up to try to buy them. Now, God's Word plainly says that this type of thing will go on. There are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into license. I've heard of several cases over the many, many years where individuals who are supposed to be converted members of the church will get to talking to someone. Maybe he's a man and she's a lovely young female. And maybe he's married and she is, or maybe neither one of them are. But they get talking about love. And let's just love everything. Let's love everybody. God is love. God made the sunshine. Let's love the sunshine. God made that bush. Let's love the bush. God made a snake. Let's love the snake. We don't have to hate the snake. And so you go on and on about love. And pretty soon you just love everybody and everything. And what the world needs is more love. And so pretty soon it isn't wrong. It's an act of love if we get in the back seat and commit fornication. And God loves us. And he understands all of these urges and so on. So God is just looking the other way. It's all love. I hate to inform you that there have been young women in the church in the last 30, 40 years that have actually fallen for a line like that and have gone along with that kind of an approach. Now that is an extreme where someone is actually attempting physical gratification and trying to use the same old line that was used by the Greeks and the Romans during the time the Apostle Paul was preaching in Athens where sexual promiscuity got to the point where there were actual temple prostitutes to whom men could go in and commit acts which were supposed to be religious in nature. That's the extreme to which some people can carry false doctrine, as long as it satiates human lust. They turn the grace of God, which is the unmerited forgiveness and pardon, forgiveness of sin, and sin is the transgression of the law. They twist that, they turn it into lasciviousness, which means license, to do evil, and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So he puts them in remembrance. In verse 6, the angels, which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, has he reserved an everlasting chains unto darkness, unto the judgment of the great day. Now verse 8, likewise these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, and nearly always that is a part of what they have in mind, is a part of their hidden agenda, 
Every now and then, somebody comes up with the idea like the Mormons did and went underground on the north rim of the Grand Canyon several decades ago. And there was a man who came straight out of the parent organization and came to our church organization on the very first Sabbath in Tyler 14 years ago. And one of his several wives played the piano. Now, if I'd have known a little more about the situation at the time, she wouldn't have played the piano or even darkened the door. I can see where some men might like to espouse polygamy, but most American women are so outraged at that idea of being treated like chattel that some man ought to go along with seven women following eight paces behind him that it makes them absolutely furious. But this guy was able to convince some of these women that they all ought to be his wives. So he's trooping around the country with a whole batch of wives, and he was doing it in the name of religion. It was a very godly thing. I don't think they went through any kind of ceremonies. They were kind of like the Manson group. They all just took each other in the sight of God. Oh, yes, there are all kinds of people with all kinds of hidden agendas. They defile the flesh, despise dominion, true government. The question is not government, but whose, and speak evil of dignities. A little later on, he says in verse 11, Woe unto them, they have gone in the way of Cain, and ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward, and perished in the gainsaying of Cory. You can look up the gainsaying of Korah when all of the leaders who got together in a kind of a class action who began to have a demonstration came up to Moses and said we are as good as you are who appointed you we are the people we're going to burn in incense and Moses said alright fine if I'm a man of God God will make a new thing and he'll open up the earth and you and all that appertain to you are going to go down and be swallowed up if not that's fine it's up to God whatever he decides and Korah and the entire group were swallowed up in a huge crevasse in the earth and you can read the story back in the book of Exodus, of what happened. These are blemishes, but actually hidden things, spots in your feasts of charity or your love feasts. When they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear, clouds they are without water, carried about of winds, trees whose fruit withereth without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame, wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Here is Jude, right toward the close of the first century, knowing that apostasy is really getting a great deal of impetus in the church, a lot of headway, and actually warning about people with hidden agendas inside the church who were like blemishes in what otherwise should have been a beautiful, wonderful love feast that they were putting out food for the poor and doing what God's church should have been doing, to be charitable. Over in 1 Timothy, the fourth chapter in verse 1, back just a little bit before Hebrews, 1 Timothy, the fourth chapter in verse 1, Now the Spirit speaks expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. Why do people do that? What is hypocrisy? Hypocrisy is a hidden agenda. It is stating one thing and believing or living or meaning another. It is living a double life. It is portraying one facade and having a secret facade, the Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde analogy, that people do not see. It is appearing to be something you are not, like a wolf in sheep's clothing. Speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. And there are people who can get to the point 
to where speaking lies, speaking false doctrine, trying to get a following, does not trouble their conscience any further. They have gone too far. Now, in this case, some of them were forbidding to marry. And so what do we have as an outgrowth of that? You look at some of the largest churches in the world, you look at a lot of religions in, in the Orient and elsewhere where there is a priesthood, whether it's Nepal or throughout the Roman Catholic Church, that is allegedly, supposedly, celibate. But if you read some of the books that were back here coming to light and a lot of the articles that are written in the United States about some of the Catholic prelates and bishops and some of the local priests in various Catholic organizations all around the country, uh, it was it was just pretty pretty grotesque, pretty bizarre, to say the least. Uh, homosexuality and child molestation and so on came to light, and of course a great deal of it was covered up, but there was a tremendous amount that came out back when the United States was going through the convulsions of these horrible revelations about daycare centers. And Roman Catholic priests came in for a tremendous amount of criticism over that very thing. Because men don't stop being men just because you enforce upon them some rule that claims they should be celibate nor do women cease being women when they also are supposed to be wearing habits and to be merely uh, the handmaiden of the Lord and are supposed to be celibate throughout their lives. Forbidding to marry, they were doing it back then, and commanding to abstain from meats which God has created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. Now in verse 6 is what I wanted to point out. If you, Timothy, is the minister, Paul is saying, if you put the brethren in remembrance of these things, you shall be a good minister of Jesus Christ. It wasn't just Paul putting Timothy in remembrance. Timothy was to put the brethren in remembrance, to educate them, to get them to be alert to potential hidden agendas, to false teachers, to sin in their midst, and let them understand that there might be something they should be doing about it. In 2 Timothy 2 and verse 14, of these things, here are some of these same principles, and he begins to talk about all of those factors leading up to this statement about his own persecutions. Of these things, verse 14 of 2 Timothy 2, put them in remembrance, charging them before the Lord that they strive not about words to no profit, but to the subverting of the hearers. Do your diligence, as it should read, to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, but shun shun profane and vain babblings. Now, I've never done that and made the babbler happy. I've never figured out a formula, and you can't either, so why don't you quit it? I don't make babblers happy. When they show up on my doorstep, I say, what are you doing, banging for a bit part in a Jesus movie? What are you doing standing there in a weird get-up like that? That's not normal clothing. If he tells me he's a holy man, I'm sorry, I don't have time, goodbye. And I go and I get something done because if the devil can't do anything else, he'll just waste your time. Oh, that's unchristian, isn't it? Shun vain babbling. How do you do that? I'm not going to stand there. Oh, is that right? Oh, is that so? Well, what do you know about that? Did you say you're the holy man of the great mountain of what? Uh, I don't have time for that nonsense. And so, when Jehovah's Witnesses used to come to my door, they invariably went away unhappy, but on the other hand, I'm not sure of that. I think they felt good as they went off the porch and stood there and picked up their shoe and dusted them off and said, hmm, and walked down the street to the next house. I probably ended up making them feel good, if the truth be told. 
but I didn't invite them in like some of you have and let them sit down and wade through the Bible and try to convert them. You're not going to convert people like that. They're there to convert you, not for you to convert them. Shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness. And their word does eat. You know, when you plant a seed in the ground, it's going to take root, it's going to grow. Now, a thought, an evil thought, something horrible, can be planted in your mind. A doubt can be planted in your mind. A rumor can be planted in your mind. A little bit of skepticism. Now, we could start here and we could decide it's, it's get somebody. You know, just pick a name out of the congregation. It's get him. Oh, poor old so-and-so. Have you heard about him? No, what about him? Well, I understand he's really having a lot of marital problems. Anytime you wanted to, you could start maliciously and deliberately by innuendo, and you could just be lying, and you could cause a family terrible problems just by deliberate manipulation of planting a little germ of a thought, which the Bible says is like a canker or a cancer, and it begins to grow. And you know, cancer cells grow faster than normal cells, which is why they are so deadly. Now notice, of whom is Hymenus and Philetus? He had to name a couple of people who were lay members, who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already, and overthrow the faith of some. It doesn't matter how bizarre, doesn't matter how weird, there will be those who will follow. That's sad. I've never ceased to be amazed if I am flipping around and pause for a few seconds and some of these characters going through all these wild gyrations of some guy pretending to speak in tongues and making some unintelligible gibberish or suspected Spanish epithets or whatever he is, he is saying. And uh, the camera will swerve away from him and I'm, I'm just amazed. And there's an auditorium out there absolutely filled with people. Now, on C-SPAN the other day, it caught my attention. I'm flipping around. There's a guy. He's obviously a member of the House of Representatives. And he was talking about America's trade imbalance. And he was really giving it to us. And he was talking about what ought to be done. And he was just powerfully delivering a message. And the camera swiveled around. And the entire chamber of the House of Representatives was absolutely empty except for one clerk sitting over there putting down what he was saying. If you've got something to say, nobody will listen. If you want to get on television and act like a religious idiot, you got a crowd. Believe me, I mean, it's been done. People can, any kind of weird thing you can imagine, they will get a following because it eats as a canker and it overthrows the faith of some. Are you one? Are you susceptible? I remember a sermon I gave one time where I quoted the scripture about Satan the devil, of how he just so easily is able to capture some people and how the Bible describes Satan as a roaring lion walking about seeking whom he may devour and I gave the analogy of, of uh, Satan being questioned about and then we substitute our name oh him oh no he's easy I just walk along kind of crook my finger come here and I got him on a string like a yo-yo no problem with him and I was just trying to embarrass people to say look you're supposed to individually resist the devil and he will flee from you you don't entertain Satan the devil and listen to what he's got to say. That was Eve's big mistake. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knows them that are his, but let everyone that names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. 
And he is saying, talking about all manner of wood and honor and dishonor in verse 20, and that's true of all of us. As I've said, there are people of every kind of background, educational and financial or economic level, people of every kind of stature or status, ordained or unordained, in the church. If, verse 21, a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and fit for the master's use and prepared for every good work. Flee youthful lusts, fun and games. Everything from drinking six-pack of beer, playing pool, to electronic games, to sex and drugs. Flee youthful lusts, but follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. But foolish and stupid, unlearned questions avoid knowing that they do gender strifes. Because people are always of two opinions. Do we do that? Do we avoid foolish questions? Well, we try. Sometimes, unfortunately, and here is the, here's the rub, as I said at the beginning, it is an attitude that grows out of wanting to be good, wanting to give no offense, thinking we might entertain an angel unawares, the misapplication of the parable of the tares, wanting to leave everyone feeling good about us, never wanting to give any offense in anything but being long-suffering, slow to speak, slow to wrath, eager to believe the best, patient, kind, good, and then applying all those things to Satan the devil. Jesus Christ of Nazareth was all those things. But Jesus Christ of Nazareth inspired these words. And he says to the local lay member, it is your responsibility to recognize a wolf and to say to him, I think you're a wolf. Not to say to him, you look like a sheep, you smell like a sheep, you talk like a sheep, so therefore you must be a sheep. But to say to him, I think you may be a wolf. Flee also youthful lusts. And then he said, foolish and unlearned questions avoid, knowing they do gender strifes. But the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, able to teach, patient, in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil. And this is that scripture to which I refer earlier, referred earlier, who are taken captive by him at his will, in his leisure, at his good pleasure. And then he talks about the last times and how all of these terrible things are going to accrue. And he said, finally, in verse 7 of chapter 3, these are the kind who are ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, as in Janus and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds reprobate concerning the faith, but they shall proceed no further, for their folly shall be evident to all men, as theirs was also. But you have fully known my doctrine, my manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience, persecutions, afflictions, which came to me. And in verse 13, he said, Evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Sometimes you simply cannot avoid confrontation. Let's turn to 2 Thessalonians 3 quickly. 2 Thessalonians, the third chapter. This sounds a little bit harsh to some people. 
and a lot of people do not wish to invoke this responsibility or to follow it or obey it. The Apostle Paul is reminding them in verse 6, and by the way, this is oral authority, we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother. That is an individual lay member's responsibility. He's not writing to a minister. He's writing to the lay membership. And he is saying, you must take your responsibility. You don't make a person living in sin, a person with a false doctrine, a person with weird ideas, a person who sees visions and has dreams and thinks he's got a special relationship with Jesus Christ and some kind of a brand new Noah, or a person who thinks he's one of the two witnesses, you don't sit around and say, isn't that fascinating? You don't do that. You withdraw yourselves from every brother that walks disorderly and not after the tradition which he received of us. For yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we behave not ourselves disorderly among you, neither did we eat any man's bread for naught. I remember one time many, many years ago, a man came and he even had a name. I won't recall the name now on purpose, although it was a kind of a funny name out of which you could make a little bit of a joke. And when you pronounce the name correctly, it sounded all right, but if you pronounce it a little incorrectly, it meant somebody didn't have any get up and go. Whatever get up and go he'd had already done got up and gone, as uh, some people might have said. But he showed up at Mrs. Hammer's front yard, came in some battered old car, he hitchhiked, came up there because Mrs. Hammer, way back during those days, was the person who actually arranged all the housing for people of the Feast of Tabernacles, and he plunked a couple old suitcases down the front yard and came in and said, where do I stay? And Mrs. Hammer wanted to be a good Christian lady, and she is and she has been. And she opened the door and let him in. And I don't know how many weeks went by. Six weeks. He stayed there. He just lived there. And then he got to complaining about her housekeeping. There was a time when he began to tell her that his room wasn't being cleaned on time. Now, you know, if, if it had really come to pass the way he wanted it to, Mrs. Hammer and her family would have had their suitcases on the front yard with their thumb out, and he'd been sitting there, y'all get off my front yard, because that's exactly what he had in mind. He was a leech, and he went from one church to another. Now, just the other day, we are talking about real estate or something. We were talking to somebody, and they were telling me, about a family that had rented a house, and they went down here and rented from a rental agency in Tyler a whole house full of furniture, and then they pulled all kinds of scams and all kinds of deals and borrowed all kinds of money and got in all kinds of debt. And about the time they had all that money, they just got them a U-Haul trailer and filled it up with all of that rental furniture, took off to parts unknown. Now, right now, they're probably somewhere up in Ohio and they've already sold that furniture, and they've got some more, and they're doing the same thing over again. And there are people like that. We've had phone calls at the office who will pick up the yellow pages and go through there and call every church, every religious organization, and talk about how desperate they are, and they've got to have help, and they need some money. And it's our responsibility to tell the ones who are really genuine and who have need from those who are crooks and are simply working a scam. You've got the same responsibility. I know it's better to err on the side of making a mistake and giving to a panhandler, isn't it? Of course it is. It's always better to make a mistake on that side of the fence than to be, well, pecuniary or to be uh, miserly or to defy what God says about being giving. So we need to understand the individual responsibility of it, nevertheless. Over in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 1, 
I charge, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be instant, in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts, because of what they want, because of hidden agendas, because of a lifestyle they want to pursue, they will heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, because oftentimes people want to hear what they want to hear. They want to be told what they want to be told. And there are plenty of would-be teachers around and politicians who will only say what people want to hear. There is no man on the, in, on, on the scene in the United States of America who is truly qualified to be president that I know about, because he would have to be a man who had the wisdom of Solomon, the patience of Job, would have to have the love and mercy and forgiveness and kindness of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, would have to have the sense of justice of an Elijah, and therefore he would be so honest that he would stand up and make his very first campaign speech in the New Hampshire primaries and not one human being would vote for him. Because he would tell us all what a pack of cheats, liars, sniveling crooks, and lazy people we are and try to tell America what is really wrong with us and lay the blame squarely to the door of the American home and family. He would say that criminals who commit a, uh, an armed robbery with a gun should do mandatory, no probation, 20 years. He would say that anybody who murders should be put to death. He would say a drug pusher should receive the, the death penalty. He would tell things the way they really are to get rid of crime in our country and to really put America back to work. And he couldn't get away with that because any politician has got to be a liar by the very nature of the game. And then people are so outraged. Now the first question the United States is going to ask in the resurrection, that is people who haven't found out what the resurrection is all about yet, they're going to beat a door like a, an absolute swinish herd of Yorkshire hog just galloping up to John Kennedy and say, did you really get it on with Marilyn Monroe? That's the first question they want to know. But oh boy, if Clinton had a mistress, <gasps> and what about Eisenhower's chauffeur? And what about George Washington, who was a slave owner? And what about even good old honest Abe? You know, they've rewritten history, and people will delve into the lives of people like FDR and find out he had a lot of women. People know that John Kennedy had a steady stream of women come in and out, even of the White House, and they revel in that, they know about it. But the hypocritical public is so absolutely fork-tongued, double-standard, hypocritical, and the media, as the new high priests of all righteousness, lead them into that uh, mode of thought, that when they can discover a scandal on somebody, he's automatically unqualified. Now, if he's dead and gone, and he's been president for two terms, people don't seem to care. They even admire him for it. But if they find out about it in advance, a whole different story. Hypocrisy is not something that is very rare in our world, is it? He says here, they will heap to themselves, teachers, because they will hear what they want to hear, having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and be turned unto fables. If you will look now at Ephesians 4 and verse 16, Ephesians, the fourth chapter and the sixteenth verse. This is another of the analogies, and 1 Corinthians 12 is the first one we referred to that has to do with the church as a body. 
And this is exhorting the church to grow, that it grows together for the edifying of the body of Christ. Verse 13, to read up to this, till we all come in the unity of the faith to the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. Now, I have no doubt whatsoever, Mr. Dart has just written a couple of new articles on the subject to re-clarify some very important points, and we have a booklet entitled, The Passover, Is It for Christians? Every single spring, without fail, you can absolutely depend upon certain people beginning to espouse ideas about keeping the Lord's Supper, as it is called by the Apostle Paul, or and it's a little bit of nomenclature we need to understand. We're not really technically, as I've tried to explain for years, observing the Passover. The Passover is the next night, which we have tended to call, and that is really not a feast at all mentioned in the Bible, the, quote, night to be much remembered. And we perhaps need to educate the church about changing that nomenclature. But the night to be much remembered was the night of the Exodus and the night of the Passover when the death angel passed over the Israelitish homes. But to make a long story short, it never fails that every spring there are attempts to overthrow the doctrine of the Word of God, the book of Exodus, Leviticus, and all the rest of it, the booklet, our decades-long practice of observing the symbols of Christ's shed blood on the very same night, as Paul said, in the night in which, in which he was betrayed, he took bread. So you can depend upon it. It's like a cold front coming out of Canada. It's like daylight savings time. It's like the new front coming in tonight and tomorrow. There will be self-appointed, would-be theologians who will submit papers or simply just begin to teach people and try to get them to observe the Passover on a different date. And it'll happen again this year, I guarantee it. So it says, till we all come in the unity of the faith, to the measure, the stature, the fullness of Christ, that we be henceforth no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine, whatever is new and different, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. Surely no one would do that. Well, then why is it in the Word of God? Why is there so much warning? Why have we been reminded to see so much here about what was happening in the church then, and to be reminded that it will be happening today, if it never happens. If everyone in every church, if every ordained minister, if every associate or assistant pastor, if every deacon and deaconess, if every lay member, great or small, old or young, is in the sheepfold, is absolutely a sheep, has no hidden agenda, but a 12-foot or 20-foot barbed wire electrified fence around and the door slams shut so that you know the minute you walk into the door of any church congregation, you are in a protective environment where you will never hear anything that you need to worry about. Somebody comes up to you after services and begins talking about something and sounds a little offbeat. It's got to be right because they're in the church like you are. Not so. You are an individual. You have individual responsibility. You must protect yourself as best you possibly can. And so it says, But speaking the truth in love may grow up unto him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together 
and compacted, listen, by that which every joint supplies. You have your part to supply according to the effectual working in the measure of every part. And we're all individual parts. You don't relax and let down your guard and say, that's the minister's job. He'll chase away the false prophets. Or I wouldn't want to offend anybody. I shouldn't tell a wolf in sheep's clothing, you look like a wolf and you smell like a wolf, and I don't like wolves. Get away from me. So instead, I will just be a good Christian and nod my head and say, oh, is that so? And you don't say, and well, <gasps> I never. And just listen. Making increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. So each individual has a responsibility. When is it unchristian to simply tell the truth? I don't believe you. Is that offensive? Why should it be? It's your opinion. When is it unchristian to say no? When is it unchristian to say, as Jesus, who was the most Christian Christian who ever lived, said to his own beloved apostle, Peter, who was momentarily filled with arrogance and vanity and misled by a false spirit that planted a thought in his mind, Get thee behind me, Satan, for you savor not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. Wow! Peter must have smarted, because I imagine Andrew and John and all the others, including his, only, his own flesh brothers, probably heard that statement. Jesus was pretty direct with people, wasn't he? Has there ever been a time in your life, while you're busy being a good Christian, that you've been that direct with anybody when you honestly knew they were wrong? Think about it. Now, finally, there was one scripture I wanted to get, because it's on another subject in a sense. But nevertheless, Titus 2, 1 to 4, I believe, is the one I want. And if it isn't the one I want, I'll merely tell you about it. I've urged that this be true for many, many years in the church, but generally it isn't, because we tend to avoid our own responsibilities. If you read up to it, he is telling Titus to teach people that the aged men be sober, verse 2 of chapter 2 of Titus, grave, temperate, sound in faith, in charity, and patient, uh, patience, the aged or elderly women likewise, that they be in behavior as becomes holiness, not false accusers, not given much wine, teachers of good things. When is an aged lady, 75, 80, 85, a teacher of good things? Our society is sort of uh, stratified. Basically, certain groups get together. The youngsters sit in one section. And older people sit in one section. And older people chat together. And young people chat together. When do I ever see an older person teaching, talking to, seriously, helping, educating, suggesting, advising, leading a young person? This is for members of a congregation not for ministers to tell aged women, and the aged women, you be quiet and I'll talk to the youths, but the aged women to talk to younger women, it says, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands. Oh, no, that's the job of the minister, to tell a young woman to love her husband. To love their children. You know, you wonder why God took away Job's wife. If you go back and read the account, I mean, Job is stricken with boils, and what is the first thing out of his wife's mouth? 
curse God and die. Fine companion she was. And what is the next problem that is heaped upon Job? Probably wasn't even a problem. Well, I shouldn't. I'm kidding. But by that time, who knows? But the entire family was wiped out. You go back and read the book, and you'll see what I'm talking about. Here was a man who was absolutely devastated. He's in such agony there wasn't one position he could get in that he didn't ache with horrible pain. And his wife saying, "Curse God and die," instead of saying, "Poor Job, how can I help?" Well, read the account. It's instructive. That they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home. You can't get away with that today. Or can you? Is that something that should obtain in God's church? Obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded. In all things, showing yourself a pattern of good works, the minister to be an example, in doctrine showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is of contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. Exhort servants, you might say employees, to substitute that today, to be obedient unto their own masters and to please them well in all things, not answering again, not purloining, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things. You see how much of this is enjoining local lay members with their own individual responsibility, showing that the body must increase, that every joint supplies something, that every part of the body helps every other part of the body. It's not just a big head, the minister walking around with a whip and excommunicating people here and rewarding people there and looking at every difficulty and protecting the flock and saying anybody inside these four walls is okay to swallow anything you hear. No, you're always to measure up to your own individual responsibility and to share that responsibility, and in that is the strength of God's church. There are people inside God's church who are walking in and sitting down and visiting, who are guests and more than welcome, people who are coming on a regular basis who might have hidden agendas. I don't fear that. Why should you? If you're wearing your armor and if you're protected, just don't take for granted that the minister is always going to recognize before you do a wolf in sheep's clothing if the pastor or the shepherd is way over there about a mile walking along with a group of the sheep and the wolf comes into the flock where you are. It is an individual responsibility and every single one of us must measure up to our part to keep God's church free from false teachers and from error.